Welcome to the James River Church Podcast. You're about to hear another inspirational message from Pastor John Lindell. It's our prayer that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. Well, what we want to do is something a little bit different, and uh, we just kind of on the spur of the moment. A lot of things are on the spur of the moment here. <laughs> and uh, so, Debbie, this morning, you were in, you're kind of touring around the building, which... Well, actually, uh, a girl messaged me on, on Facebook or Instagram last night, and she said, I would love to meet you. I'd love to bring you something. I said, well, maybe we can meet tomorrow, but I didn't. That's tough, you know, lots of people. I walked in first service, and they, her and her husband were right there, like right there. I was like, oh, this is awesome. She said, I got to tell you. We've got to tell you our story. They moved a year ago mm-hmm. and started coming to James River Church, and she said this. She said, we've never been in a church where we felt like it was home. And she said, we felt like we came home. And so they're fully involved, fully connected. She rededicated her heart to Christ and got, got baptized right away. This gets better. Two Wednesday nights ago, you may remember John um, felt led to give a prophecy that someone in this room has received bad news. You remember that? Um, She had invited her uh, sister-in-law to come, who was a professing atheist. She was in the room. She started bawling because she had just gotten a text that was bad news. She gave her life to Christ two weeks ago on Wednesday night. And got baptized last Sunday. Come so on. Awesome. Come on. Woo! Isn't that great? Yes, so great. Now, I wanted you to hear that because on Wednesday night, I mean, we're telling you God is moving in yes. an exceptional way. Like, like we have not seen in our whole ministry here at the church. And, and the Lord is working, uh, uh, not this last week, but the week before then. Uh, there was just a real move during the service for healing. I'm going to ask Shannon Grisham to come on up here. Shannon's an attorney. Marcus and Shannon, come on up. But, hey, you sent a testimony. God did something pretty amazing in your yes. body physically. Yes. Tell us about it. Okay. Um, so... Uh, how much time do I have? Nice. You know, I'm an attorney. I could go on and on. So that Wednesday night, um, before we came, I just really felt like the Lord had something for me, did not know what it was. And so when Pastor Don started speaking towards the end, and he mentioned Renaud's, um, I don't know if anyone knows what it is. You gave a little bit about it. I have Renaud's too. And I hadn't been praying over healing for it. I had Renaud's. Yes. Thank you, Marcus. Um, I had Renaud's. I no longer have it. The Lord healed me that night. Um, praise the Lord. So um, I, I just knew when you mentioned that, that was the word that the Lord had for me, stood up. Um, and I just felt the Lord was healing me in that moment. Um, and Tell them what you did when you went home. <laughs> oh, yes. So um, when we went home, um, for any of you who don't know, cold is just really miserable for people who have Renaud's. Your fingers turn white, your toes turns wa- turn white, and you just really can't handle any type of cold. It's very painful. So because I just knew that the Lord had healed me when we went home, Marcus was putting our boys to bed, and I stuck my hand in the freezer for 30 seconds on ice, um, counted down, you know, 10, 9, 8, looked no white, pulled him out, did it again. Amazing? Did it again, and then I called Marcus in, and I said, you have to see this. Look what the Lord did. And we stood there in the freezer um, and just stared <laughs> at normal hands because the Lord um, had healed me. That's so um, awesome. And 
it was. Praise the Lord. I just have to say, uh, the next day when I went out, got in the car, it was freezing, grabbed the steering wheel, same thing. Um, so the Lord, I mean, it, it, we're still in awe. I could go on and on. It's just the healing power of the Lord. Um, Jehovah Rapha, he is, he is our healer. He is who he yes, says he is. Absolutely. So. Thank you so much, Marcus and Shannon. We love you guys. I just think it's good for you to hear what God is doing, because I can tell you what he's doing. I hear all, all these stories, read these emails, and we try to let you know, but to hear it straight from people, I think, is so awesome. And God is moving in power. And that's why the series that we've just started, if you're new this morning, the title of the series is, the name of it is Epic Faith. And it's very appropriate for us at this point in the life of the church because you can sense the Spirit of God stirring in a unique and an unusual way. You can see it with the numbers of people getting saved. I mean, already this year, we've had 245 people who have come to Christ. I mean, come on. That's, that's just in the first four weeks of January, and we've baptized 233 people. I don't know about you. A lot of people call that revival, right? At the prayer meeting, I mean, it is on fire at what God is doing. And so we're sensing the Lord moving. I believe God is moving us into a new season, a new experience of his presence as a church. I know this, he's doing it in the church. He wants to do it in the heart and life and the home of everybody who's a part of James River. Whether you're at an in-person campus or you're watching online, he wants to do that. God has more. I believe 2021 can be our best year as a church, our best year individually. Debbie and I are looking forward to what God is going to do in 2021. As well, let me say this. It's a great opportunity for people of faith, given the pandemic, when people are still living in fear, when people are still surrounded by anxiety. I read an article this past week, the Pew Research did a survey. Missouri is the most depressed and anxious state in the union. Can you believe that? I was shocked by that, but then I said, what a great opportunity for the Church of the Living God in Missouri to rise up to believe God, to say, I'm walking by faith, and to let people who don't have that faith see the joy, see the peace, see the presence of, the, of God and the power of God on our lives. If we're going to do that, we're going to have to have epic faith, right? A faith that's more than just faith. A faith that's epic. Jesus said to the centurion, he said, I've never seen such great faith in all Israel. He said to the woman who was a, from a pagan city who asked him to heal her daughter, he said, woman, you have great faith. Last week, we talked about a definition of faith, of epic faith, what it means. This morning, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, and we're going to find that epic faith equals epic worship. Epic faith equals epic worship. Let's read it, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain did. 
By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks even though he is dead. Now, when you read that verse, uh, uh, immediately there are several questions, especially if you're new to the study of God's Word. Maybe you're a new believer, and if you are, don't feel bad. Everybody was in that place at one point. And you might not know who Abel is. You might not know who Cain is. You know, as I read all of this, I'm reminded of a missions trip I took down to Panama in 1993, and I'd invited uh, a guy who worked at the bank. He managed the Ozark branch uh, for Commerce Bank. I invited him to go with me, and we're out in the middle of the jungle, and they turn off the lights at, at night. They have a generator, and they shut it off at 8 o'clock, and so, you're, you know, it's pitch black, and... Uh, so we're sitting there, and I said, well, hey, we got a flashlight. Um, and I say to him, I say, uh, why don't we do a little Bible study while we're here? And I knew he didn't know the Lord. And so I said to him, I said, what do you want to study? He said, well, how about, a, how about, a, how about a faith? I said, that's great. I said, why don't we do Hebrews 11? It's the hall of faith, and we'll learn about. And so I said, we started reading. I said, do you know who Abel is? And he's like, no, I, I don't know who Abel is. Do you know who Enoch is? No, I don't know who Enoch is. We got down to Noah. He'd heard of Noah. But we did this study on faith, and by the end of our time in the jungle, he'd given his heart to Christ. Today, he pastors a church of over 3,000 people. So... Uh, you know, you never know what God's going to do in somebody's life. This is, this is truth that will transform your life. When you get this in your heart, when you get epic faith in your heart, it will change the course. It will change the direction of your life. It will, it will have you doing things you never in a million years would imagine that you would be doing. So there's some questions. Who's Abel and who's Cain? And, and what about their sacrifices? Why was one better than another? To answer that question, you really have to go back to Genesis chapter 4. That's where their story is. When you come to the book of Genesis, Genesis is a very, very important book. It's the first book in the Bible. It is a book of origins, not oranges, origins. <laughs> it tells us why things are the way they are. It tells us about the start of life on the earth. And in Genesis chapter 4, we meet the first to people that were born to the first human couple. God created Adam and Eve. He placed them in the garden. They sinned. They were expelled from the garden. And now, having to work the land, having to live on a sin-cursed earth because of their own sin, their own sin released sin into creation. Now they start a family. And so we read in Genesis chapter 4, now Adam had sexual relations with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant. When she gave birth to Cain, she said, with the Lord's help, I have produced a man. He is the first baby born in the Bible. She sees Cain as a gift from the Lord. In other words, and I say this, she doesn't see him as a chance accident. She doesn't say, oh, I don't know how this happened. And she doesn't see him as a result of evolutionary process. We read on, and it says, later she gave birth to his brother and named him Abel. 
Now, just in passing, a couple of observations to kind of set the stage. And we won't say everything that could be said about this first couple and their two sons, but we're going to say some things that I think you'll find quite interesting. When we read this story, later it's going to say, and we're not going to get to it in our study, but I'm setting the stage because invariably people read this, and their first question is, where did Cain get a wife? And the fact of the matter is that there's Adam and Eve. They have children. The children, it's a a more pure genetic pool. They intermarry, and they produce other offspring. That wouldn't happen today. That's not acceptable today. But at the start of creation, it was okay and was necessary for the propagation of the human race on planet Earth. God did not create anybody besides Adam and Eve from Adam. Furthermore, let me say this, because this is absolutely foundational for everybody's understanding of theology. Every person that is on the earth, every person came from Adam and Eve. Scripture clearly affirms this. Acts chapter 17, verse 26. Paul says, from one man, he, that's God, made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. From one man, God made every nation of men. When you go to Romans chapter 5, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. Prior to Adam's sin, there was not death, which makes evolutionary progression not theologically possible. Death comes through sin. Sin came through Adam. The creation groans under the weight of that. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. This tells us something that we looked at thoroughly in Romans, but I just want to say, and I I bring it up as often as I can, because invariably in an increasingly secular society, people don't understand this, they don't want to believe this, but this is absolutely essential theologically. You don't become, I don't become, nobody becomes a sinner when they sin. They sin because they are born sinners. You say, how can they be born sinners? Because when Adam sinned, you and I were in him genetically, and when Adam sinned, he was the representative of the human race. And we all understand when when people lead over us, they make decisions, and their decisions affect the rest of us. If they declare war, we're at war. If they sign a peace treaty, we're at peace. We delegate that to them for better or for worse, that kind of power and responsibility. Some people take it, but it's still the same. If you're a dictator or if you're an elected official, there's a representative head and the population underneath them is subject to the decisions and the consequences of those decisions they make. 
So whether you take it genetically or you take it representatively, either way, and I believe it's both, Adam sinned, therefore, because he sinned, all sinned, past tense. You were in him. You sinned in him. Now let me tell you why this is absolutely imperative, because the gospel is built on this reality. One man sinned and all became sinners. One man died for us and all became righteous when they come to him and are at that point in him. I mean, Romans chapter 5, verse 19, look at it. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. If one man's sin didn't cause everybody to become a sinner, then let me tell you, the whole argument of, of Christ redeeming us completely falls apart. Because if one man's sin did not make everybody a sinner, then how can you say one man's death and sacrifice can make everyone righteous? You can't have one without the other. This is really important that you understand. Adam sins, we all become sinners because he sinned. Christ dies for us and we are in Christ when we put our faith in him. And when he died, it's as if we died. When he resurrected, it's as if we were resurrected. Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. I'm in him, he's in me, I'm one with Christ. It's the source of my righteousness. Just as Adam was the source of my initial sinfulness and my propensity towards sin. Second, notice that Cain and Abel operated in full capacity as men. This is very interesting. They, don't, they in no way resemble the evolutionist missing link. The evolutionist reads Genesis and says, absolutely cannot be true because the offspring of the first man could not have been that intelligent. And, and the fact of the matter is they picture humankind as blubbering animal-type creatures who walk around picking berries and saying, ugh. <laughs> but that's not what Scripture indicates. Scripture indicates that Adam was very intelligent. He didn't stomp around the garden eating berries and chasing Eve. He might have been chasing Eve, but... <laughs> he cared for the garden, which tells us God had given him knowledge regarding agriculture. He named the animals, which would have required both a big vocabulary and some knowledge of what animals were like. You say, where did he learn it? How about he's created with it? From Genesis chapter 4 and verse 2, we know that Cain and Abel had a knowledge of agriculture. They knew how to domesticate animals, and they knew how to grow crops. And I don't think the information originated with them, I think Adam passed it down to them. Now that having been said, I want us to look at some lessons from Abel's epic faith. Let me give you three. Number one, epic faith offers an acceptable sacrifice. Look at it, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain did. 
You say, what made it better? That's a good question. Genesis chapter 4, verse 2. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked in the soil, or worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. That verse tells us several things. First of all, it tells us there was a place for worship. The fact they brought things to the Lord indicates that God had established a place for them to bring their offerings. Possibly, some scholars uh, theorize that it was at the entrance to Eden, the Garden of Eden, destroyed. People say, where would that be? The flood reconfigured the earth. We don't know. But at the east of Eden, God removed them from Eden, the Garden of Eden, and put a cherubim, a flaming angel, or an angel with a flaming sword there, to keep them from entering, lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever in a sin-cursed state, which would have been terrible. He saved them from themselves. So there was a place for them to bring sacrifices. Second, there was an established time for worship or season for worship. Notice it says in verse 3, in the course of time. In the Hebrew, it literally says at the end of days. So at an end of a certain period of time, they were to offer a sacrifice. Their sacrifice then was not to be given in some random whenever I feel like it kind of manner, but they were to come at a certain time. Third, we imply or we understand from this verse that there was an established sacrifice for worship. There, were, there was a prescribed offering. There was a place, there was a time, and there was a certain kind of offering that was acceptable to God. It appears God gave them specific information, and as it unfolds, you'll see that. They would not have known how to sacrifice had God not explained to them what would be expected of them. Furthermore, you're going to see this, and it's very fascinating. God accepts one sacrifice and rejects another, which indicates in conversation with Cain, whose offering was not accepted, that his Sacrifice was unacceptable, and Cain knew that. Look at it, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain did. Now, the question is, why was the sacrifice better? And let me just say this. Better worship, better sacrifices, has nothing to do with our preferences. We have to be very careful. In our society, we have a tendency to do what we want and to do what we feel like doing. And that's not the way worship works. God prescribes how he's to be worshiped. He prescribes how he's to be worshiped, first of all, in approaching him. How do we approach him? On the basis of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We cannot worship him apart from having received Christ as Savior. Any worship given to God apart from starting with the repentance of your sin and being right with God is unacceptable worship, period. Second, there would be other kinds of worship beyond that. 
There could be worship with our giving. There's a prescribed in the Bible. It's very, very clear how we worship God with tithes, with the tenth. The first part belongs to the Lord. That is a principle that goes all across Scripture. There is the, the actual physical acts of worship, the lifting of our hands, which we've talked about over and over again. That's a part of worship. Our speaking, the idea of, of people just sitting quietly in church is a lie foisted on the living church by a dead church. I mean, we know that. Hebrews says our, the fruit of our lips is a sacrifice. The fruit of our lips giving thanks, sacrificially. I mean, the Bible says, clap your hands, all ye people. Shout unto God with a voice of triumph. There is, a, there is a call for wholehearted, wholly engaged, physical worship. The lifting of our hands has great significance. The lifting of our voice has great power and effect. The, the clapping of our hands is another way that we worship. There's all kinds of ways we can worship. We can worship by serving the Lord. All kinds of sacrifices that we offer to the Lord, but it starts with a sacrifice based on shed blood. Better worship doesn't have to do with our preferences. It always has to do with God's preferences. In Genesis 4, what we're reading is based on what God asked them to do. And here's what we learn. Epic faith is not faith just in a moment. Epic faith is a lifestyle. It is the way you and I do life. It is the way you and I live. The way you live Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday makes a difference in what you'll see God do on any of those days or on Sunday. Epic faith offers a sacrifice. When a person is walking in epic faith and building epic faith, people say, look, I, I just want to have stronger faith. I want to have that epic kind of faith. It starts with offering the kind of sacrifice God is looking for. If I'm needing God to do something in my life, first of all, I've, I, I need to know that I'm right with God, that I'm walking with God, but then the way I approach God sacrificially has much to do with the building of my faith to receive what God would want to do in my life. Abel offered a blood sacrifice. He knew he was a sinner, and that without the shedding of blood, there was no forgiveness of sin. So as we said, it starts with an acknowledgement of the need for blood sacrifice. And this is what's happening as Abel offers his sacrifice. But that, as I said, is not the only sacrifice. We can lift our hands. We can do other things. Romans chapter 12, I want to just show this to you. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. I mean, this is... After you've offered your heart and asked Jesus, you've received the forgiveness of sin, then it's a matter of offering our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Watch this. This is your spiritual act of worship. Listen, worship is not just confined, though it, it is, you know, when, when the team is singing, you should sing. You say, I don't like singing. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you like. Get over yourself. 
You're not here to get what you like. You're here to give God what he deserves. That, that's the heart of worship. Uh, listen, I, I realize to some people that's very abrasive, very rough, but let's just call it what it is. The Bible tells us how we're to worship God. It tells us what we're to do. It tells us, it tells us to lift our hands. It tells us to sing. It uh, sing to the Lord a new song. It tells us, because some of you are like, I just like the old songs. Well, I like the old songs, but sing to the Lord a new song. That's scriptural. It's not my notes. That's from the Holy Spirit right to you. <laughs> and honestly, I don't have, uh, I mean, you all are so good. You're just, you're really an awesome group. We present our bodies. This is where Christian living begins. You know, and here's why I say this, because at times what people want to do is people want to say, well, God knows I love him. Like somehow that cancels out every other thing you're doing. God knows I love him, so it doesn't matter if I'm out getting wasted. God knows I love him, so it doesn't matter if I'm sleeping with somebody I'm not married to. God knows I love him, so it doesn't matter if I'm in a homosexual relationship. God knows I love him, so it doesn't matter if I'm using pornography. God knows I love him, but this is business, so it doesn't matter if I cheat somebody. We have to be very, very careful there. Because none of those things are true. You have to be careful about dichotomizing you're living for the Lord with excuses that somehow view what's happening in your heart and what's happening in your life as two separate things. Because here's the reality to epic faith and to spiritual living. This is really, really critical for all of us to be reminded of. If you don't pay attention to the actions of your body, it will get your soul in trouble. What you and I do physically affects us spiritually. What you and I do spiritually should affect us physically. Let me just say this. It's very important that you understand sin takes advantage of the body. And if you give sin a foothold in your body, it becomes a base of operations for sin to work against your soul. I mean, Peter understands this. Look at it, 1 Peter chapter 2. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, as people passing through this life, this is not our home, we're looking forward to heaven. Abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. If you give in to lust, whether it's a lust for money, a lust for sex, a lust for some substance, if you give in to that, what happens is it corrupts, it twists, it wars against your soul. Sinning with your physical body diminishes your spiritual walk with God. You cannot say, well, I love God, so it does not matter. It absolutely matters. On the other hand, serving God with your physical body will strengthen your life spiritually. When you serve, 
it strengthens you spiritually. When you give, it strengthens you spiritually. When you meet needs, it strengthens your life spiritually. When you lift your hands, it strengthens your life spiritually. When you sing, it strengthens your life spiritually. When you lift your voice in prayer, it strengthens your life spiritually. When we stand and we clap and we give praise to the Lord, it strengthens your life spiritually. Because as you give to God, you will never give God anything he won't multiply back in your life. That is his promise. It's the law of the harvest. <laughs> Epic faith offers an acceptable sacrifice. Number two, Epic faith lives a righteous life. Look at it, Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. Now, look at what it says in Genesis, because I, I think this is very, very interesting. But the Lord brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked. God is looking. He's not looking on the outward, he's looking on the inward. Remember 1 Samuel chapter 16, God said to Samuel the prophet, don't judge by outward appearance. Man looks on the outside, God looks at the what? Heart. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. This is very interesting. The thing God is looking at as you and I worship him is not just what we give him, but what we are. What you are as you come in is as critical or more critical than what you give. How you live is more important than what you give. It's not that giving's not important, but how you live is more important. Listen, this is very critical. God didn't just reject what Cain gave. His rejection was not based solely on what Cain gave. It was based on what Cain was like. I think it's important to understand that when God commended Abel and rejected Cain, it wasn't because God was saying, well, you know, guys, honestly, I just got to be, I got to be honest with you, I like lamb chops better than broccoli. He's, he's not looking at them and saying, you know, I've looked you both over and I just rather, you know, you're kind of drawn to some personalities more than others and I like Abel better. No, it has nothing to do with that. God is no respecter of persons. Both Cain and Abel are sinners. Both of them. Cain's sacrifice then was first of all not what God instructed. God had said to Cain and Abel, this is how you are to worship me, and Cain didn't do that. Cain says, no, you know what, I'll do what I want to do, and God should be happy with it. I mean, at least I'm in church. At least I gave something. At least I tried to be a good person. Cain said, I'll do it my, my way. I'll offer the kind of sacrifice I want to offer. I'll do it the way I want to do it. Now, let me tell you something about Cain's. Cain's always hate the idea of being born again. 
It irritates them. They don't feel they need the blood of Christ to cover them. They don't want that. They don't want to, they don't want to hear that. What Cain say is, the most important thing is that I'm a good person. Or Cain's will say, I, I live a good life. I do good things. Or Cain's will say, you know, honestly, truth be told, I'm a better person than a lot of Abel's I know. Ever heard that? They say, I don't think God cares what I give him. Or more and more common today is this idea that Keynes will say, it offends me that God doesn't accept me as I am. My intentions are good. That should be good enough for God. And that's why God rejects Keynes. Because he tried to come to God on his own terms, did his own thing, and the shocking thing is, he knew about God, unless you think God didn't care about Cain. Look at what it says, verse 4. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry. Do you ever have people that get mad at the hand of God, the blessing of God on your life? The pleasure of God, they, they, it makes them angry. I mean, you say, how do you know that? How did they know whose offering was acceptable? Well, it may have been fire fell from heaven. That seems to be a common thing in scripture. We don't know for sure. Um, but Cain was angry and his face was downcast. And literally in the Hebrew, it's his face got very red. He was red faced. Red faced, you know, it makes people mad. There, there are people in this community who all you have to do is get on social media. They're angry about James River. And this last week, I happened to just go on and read, scroll through what different people were saying in some different places. And I was like, what, what did we ever do to them? Now, let me say this, so you understand how I view that. It really, I'm always sad if people reject the Lord. I'm not as worried about what people think about us as long as we're not doing something uh, wrong or sinful to exacerbate that. Actually, I like when people are emotionally angry at us. <laughs> I prefer that to indifference. I, I, would be, I would be scared to death if nobody ever said anything on social media about us because that would mean they're indifferent. So what? I don't care. Because the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. But as long as somebody is emotionally tied in knots over things we're doing and you can't figure out why, what, you know what I know that is? It's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Somewhere somebody's praying for that person and God is working them over. I see every one of those, and you might be watching and you may be one of those people who just can't stand James River and you're like, man, I just, I just, I don't like anything you stand for and I'm angry about you and I don't know why, but I just don't like you, John Lindell. Then let me say this, you are about this close to the kingdom of heaven and God loves you so much and God's gonna reach out to you. I see it as an apostle Paul in the making, honestly. Paul was breathing out murderous threats right before he got saved. So I'm saying that because I want you to have that sense. As I talk about Cain, lest you think somehow I'm saying, oh, I'm so much, I'm so happy we're so much better than Cain's. Listen, Abel and Cain are sinners. 
I'm a sinner. The, pers- the people who don't like James River, the people that are away from the Lord, they're sinners. We're all sinners. I'm not better than they are. And I'm, I'm not angry at them or hating them. I'm praying for them, and I'm excited the Lord is working in their heart because you see it. When people get angry, God is at work. Some of you live in a home where somebody's angry. You have pe- co-workers where somebody's angry. You have people that you know, and they're angry, and you're like, I don't, I don't get it. Listen, the Holy Spirit is working in their life in such a degree, in such a dimension, that they can't hardly stand it, and that is so awesome because that just means they're really, really close. And I really love it when people watch the message to criticize it because then I say, wow, now the Word of God's getting in you, and you are completely, you've been had at that point. (laughs) I got to get back on my notes here. We got to get done here. (laughs) So he's red in the face. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you red in the face? Why? Cain, I I don't get it. You have no reason. If Cain doesn't know what God wants, then he could say, well, you didn't tell me what you want, and this is not fair. You told Abel, you didn't tell me. God, I don't understand it. Abel took the best he had, I took the best I had. We both gave you our best, so come on, God, what? But that's not it. Cain never argues with him. He is stubbornly self-righteous. He thinks he's good enough. And you'll notice there's no remorse. There's no repentance. There's no sorrow. There's no brokenheartedness. If, if you're a true believer, when you come to God and your sacrifice is rejected, what are you going to do? You're going to say, God, I'm brokenhearted. What's wrong? Where have I gone wrong? I'm going I'm to repent. I'm going to seek him. I'm going to say, God, show me, because I know that the problem is always going to be on my end, not on your end, right? That's not Cain. He's not brokenhearted. He's angry. And he's not just angry at God. He's angry at Abel because Abel was accepted. He's mad at God for accepting Abel. Watch what God says. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? If you don't know what's right, how can he do what's right? But God says, you know what the right thing is to do. Do it, and you'll be accepted. You know what this tells us? God is by nature a saving God, and you can see it here. He's encouraging a repentance that leads to restoration. In other words, Cain, you don't have to be in this situation. Listen, there's some of you today, and you're all tied up in nuts. You don't have to be in that situation. Some of you, you're kicking against the gospel. You keep refusing. You don't have to be in that situation. Some of you are away from God, and you're miserable. You don't have to be in that situation. And Cain, you can repent. You know what God's offering him in this? He's offering him forgiveness. He's offering him joy. He's offering him relationship. He's offering him acceptance. All of that. Now watch this, here's a warning. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Listen, can I just say this? When, when you, if you've not received Christ as your savior, why wouldn't you? Well, I don't know, I just wouldn't. No, 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 no. Why wouldn't you accept the best gift known to mankind? That doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense unless sin is crouching at your door. Unless sin 
is saying, you don't need that. You're good enough. What will people think? You're going to become one of those. You're, listen, you're a good person. Listen, you, you, you see her, you see him. You know you live a better life than they live. And they call themselves, they got their hands up and they're acting like they're all Mr. or Miss Christian. That's sin crouching at your door. Or sin crouching at your door. You're so far, you're too far gone. You think God's going to forgive you again? What are you going to do without, what are you going to do if you, if you give your heart to Christ, if you rededicate your life to him, you're going to have to give up that girl. You're going to have to give up that guy. You're going to have to do something here. That's, I mean, you don't want to do that. Sin is crouching at your door. And its desire is to have you. We won't take time to look at the balance of the story, but Cain says to Abel, he's so angry. He says, Abel, why don't you come out in the field? I want to show you something. When he gets out in the field, he slays, he kills Abel. And there's a conversation that results from that, and Cain is still unrepentant and still angry at God. But listen, epic faith lives a righteous life. Epic faith offers an acceptable sacrifice. And third, one, one last thing, epic faith is a witness to God's truth. Look at it, verse 4. And by faith, he, that's Abel, still speaks even though he's dead. How does somebody talk if they're dead? Well, first of all, he's not dead. He's more alive than he's ever been. He's more alive. The minute he died, he was more alive than he had ever been in his whole life. Maybe you've lost a loved one. They're not dead. If they knew the Lord, they're more alive than they have ever been. I can assure you that. They're speaking. They're talking. They're praising God. But there's more than that. They're not only speaking in heaven. They're speaking on earth. There's a legacy. Abel's life was a witness. And we don't know a lot about his life. Think of that, but we're still talking about it. Everybody, every person's life is a sermon. Every person's life is a witness. When you give your life to Christ, it's a witness. What you're saying, when you get, when you, when you, when you raise your hand, it's a witness. There is a Savior who saves. When you rededicate your life, there is a God who forgives. When, when you get baptized, there's a God who who redeems, and I'm living evidence of it. When you give your, whatever you do, whatever you do to honor God, your life honors God, not just in heaven, but here on earth. It's a legacy that goes far beyond your life here. When you raise your hands and worship, listen, it's a legacy. There are things that happen spiritually that will, if the Lord tarries, bless thousands because you lifted your hands. I'm just telling you, some of you, you say, let me explain that. So you're up against it. You're facing a battle. If you win the battle, you have no idea what's going to happen to generations. You have no idea what's going to happen in terms of people seeing God work in you. And it is, a, you are, you're lifting your hands. Hands were lifted up to the Lord. And he fought the battle. And it'll leave a legacy beyond what you ever imagined. 
Is that Lil Snavely? Do I see Lil? I do. They told me you were at the West Campus, that's why I asked. Lil's husband, John, was on staff. He still speaks. He still speaks. Every now and then I tell Lil, every now and then I'll be doing something and something John would say, Pastor John Snavely would say, would come to my mind. He had so many colorful sayings. He still speaks. He's not dead. He's alive. He still speaks. And at any time you do something for the Lord, you're creating a legacy that will echo in eternity. It will echo in eternity. It's a legacy.